Hi folks, before we get started with today's podcast, Anna and I wanted to share this great conference coming up on September 12th to the 15th. It's called PXP for Patients by Patients, Partnering to Make Research Stronger. It's a free virtual event entirely designed by patient partners and is all about patient engagement in research. Regardless of your experience of patient engagement, this event is intended for people of all experiences. It starts with an introduction to research and patient engagement. I've registered and I'm looking forward to strengthening our, my own skills and knowledge and hope you'll consider doing so too. Did I mention it's free? And it's recorded in case people can't join live. You can't beat that. So visit pxphub.org to learn more and to register today. Thanks so much for listening. And now on to today's episode. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on As Per Usual, a podcast that explores the current state of patient engagement in Canadian research and how to make it better. My name is Bryn Robinson, and today we've got two wonderful guests to talk all about awareness. In our study, participants raised concerns about the lack of awareness of patient engagement that still persists in the research community. After nearly a decade of spore in Canada, what gives? Oh boy, Bryn, what gives is absolutely right. So then how do we move into a preferred future state in which there is widespread awareness of patient engagement in research, including of its benefits, preferred approaches, as well as even how to get involved in it? Well, our workshop participants suggested that enhanced knowledge mobilization practices where research findings are readily accessible by the general public is a step in the right direction. This means moving beyond only publishing study findings in scientific journals to also regularly sharing research findings through a wide range of mediums and products, including podcasts such as this one. Workshop participants also suggested that there needs to be an established space for current and potential research partners, including the public who wants to just get to know about patient engagement in research and health research in general, to connect, and that also publicizes ongoing and completed research and hosts conferences and other public events. So, These are two big picture approaches to increasing awareness of patient engagement in research. And with us today, we have two guests, Ray Martins and Dr. Tina Fahim, who will be sharing their individual and collective experiences with raising awareness for patient engagement in research. Thanks again for joining us today. Tina, could you start us off with letting the listeners know a little bit about your research background and whatever else you'd like them to know about you? And then Rachel, could you do the same? Happy to. So my name's Tina Fahim. I'm an implementation scientist at the Knowledge Translation Program at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. And so I really view myself as a methodologist. And the goal of my work is to make sure that we're 
putting evidence into practice. And so we work across a number of different disciplines and different levels and uh, really just support uh, different stakeholders to make sure that evidence is patient oriented, but it's also being implemented. And so our projects range from everything to um, uh, implementing clinical initiatives at the hospital level to supporting policymakers to make sure that they're using evidence in creating policy. And the common thread that we try to include in all of our projects is an integrated knowledge translation approach, meaning we really want to make sure that patients or members of the public or those who are going to be impacted by the research have a say in shaping our research questions, our initiatives, our evaluation, and then finally the dissemination. And for myself, I uh, have the honor of living, working, and playing in Treaty 7 territory in southern Alberta, and I function as a knowledge broker, which is sort of a growing role as of late, where it's an opportunity for people to go, for someone who works in this role, to go out into the community and to share the concept of research overall. Um, to share that through information that might not necessarily be regularly democratized with a certain population of people, um, make connections for researchers and community members who might have an interest in partnering together, um, things like that. So it's a lot of, it's kind of like being a bit of a research influencer or a matchmaker, but with knowledge would be kind of a short version of that. Um, that uh, this work has had me uh, split my time between both uh, McMaster University as well as uh, the University of Calgary with the Israeli Accelerator. Uh, so some of the work has focused um, on folks within the disability community overall in Canada, and uh, that has had a variety of impacts over time, not only for with the work that I do, but also as a research partner with lived experience myself and being able to share and reflect on those experiences in order to show other people what um, what awareness raising can look like in this area and that uh, what it means to partner and how that can fit into a person's life as well too. Influencer, that's the first time we've heard that mentioned on the podcast, but it sounds like a perfect term for especially this topic. So Ray, could you tell us about some of the cool uh, influencing activities you've been doing for raising awareness? Well, one area that I decided to jump into um, with a bit of um, uh, with as little dignity as I have, I'm a bit of a goof in nature. I met my husband in theater back in the day um, in a mime troupe we were both auditioning for ironically. So the wedding had a lot of goofy mime jokes along the time in terms of how we met, but that has offered an opportunity to take humor and talk about my own life and things like that and do that on uh, social media platforms like TikTok and to kind of contextualize the reality of what it means to partner and how that um, can benefit from a variety of experiences. I've reflected on some of my work uh, it, within the policy field, uh, having gone to the UN twice and um, get, considering that human rights is a significant uh, knowledge gap with a lot of Canadians, I've ha helped have the opportunity to contextualize what this means uh, during the last couple of years with COVID, um, kind of helping defeat some of the misinformation associated alongside human rights, but also saying that you can still partner and participate and uh, get involved and help shape uh, big things along the way. Um, and then some of the other experiences that I've had as well, too. Um, I do a lot of writing. Um, I've had a few exchanges as well, too, just within the community, just um, finding 
unusual spaces in which to share these experiences and help tell the story. I'm a big fan of uh, the storytelling nature of that. And I do that through not only just um, the dynamics of just the usual types of talks, but I do that through photography as well too. Um, so I get to share kind of the reality of my life and how that fits within the broader world. Um, so it's, uh, it's nice to be able to be creative in this space for sure. And just to kind of think about how, uh, unusual mediums can sometimes be more impactful in, in some respects as well. That's so cool, Ray. And I heard that you and Bryn once baked bread and talked about patient engagement and research. That we How did. Was that? that was a magical time. <laughs> oh, that's so awesome. And what about you, Tina? Could you tell the listeners a little bit about some of the initiatives you've been engaged in to raise awareness? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the number one thing is just given the nature of my role, we're often called in to kind of consult on different projects, different grants. And so that's a really fantastic opportunity to work with different scientists and researchers across disciplines and across institutions. And for me, that's really been a, a fantastic platform to raise awareness. People bring us in to consult on a very specific piece of knowledge translation or mo knowledge mobilization, but it's an off often an opportunity to highlight to them how we can include patient partners on the grant or how we can build in, uh, you know, resources or a research question that really emphasizes that patient voice. And I think being able to have those conversations very early on in the grant development process or in the protocol writing phase has been absolutely critical because it allows us to think very early on about what resources do we need to do this meaningfully and to think about that as an essential component and an essential objective of our research study rather than an add-on once we've kind of shaped our scientific objectives. So that that for me is really the bread and butter is, is bringing it up in every kind of review or, or a consult that we do. Um, but in terms of kind of a, a formal initiative, one one that comes to mind is the um, the roundtables initiative that we ran with the Ontario Spore Support Unit, and so uh, the OSU, the Ontario Spore Support Unit, actually funded a number of demonstration projects, and they provided seed funding to these different researchers to make sure that they had the tools and the resources to build meaningful relationships with patient partners, and then use that to to fuel these projects. And so it was really nice. They had a whole supplement in the CMAJ describing the different projects. And so what the Aussie wanted to do at study end was to have a dissemination event to really feature and showcase these projects and to talk about the impacts of patient-oriented uh, research and also to look at lessons learned across the different projects. So we were brought into this initiative through the SPORE Evidence Alliance and we helped run these roundtables. So I think we had 15 study teams that uh, came together to present their findings and we were able to bring together a really diverse group of stakeholders that included uh, members of the government, both federally, provincially, municipally, yeah, different research networks, different policymakers, health organizations, patient partners, of course. And it was really an opportunity for these research teams accompanied by their patient partner leads to tell the stories about what they did, what they learned, and to disseminate their findings directly to these decision makers. And what result, we thought it was going to be mostly a one-way dissemination, but it was actually a fantastic conversation where people were able to showcase their, their research, but it was also a platform for these policymakers to 
to also give the researchers feedback about what they need and what they need to make decisions and what type of data and outcomes they need in order to drive policy and decisions. So that exchange was really invaluable and was really different than a lot of the traditional dissemination uh, forms we've taken. The other really nice thing is we were able to kind of zoom out from the individual projects and think about what we need to do to change our systems to be more conducive to patient-oriented research. So, of course, we all know that there's uh, time investments, resource investments needed to do patient engagement in a non-tokenistic way. But we were also able to zoom out and think about how, how does our REB run? How is our data collected? And how are our process conducive to, to supporting this research or not? And some of the individual teams were able to change some of these processes through their projects. So that was a really fantastic kind of takeaway from that initiative is there are a lot of things we can be doing at the system level to facilitate patient oriented research and having that awareness by the people in charge of these systems was was really fantastic. That's really interesting and I had a I have one quite well, I, I had a question but I'm like something you said Tina made me think okay I actually want to ask a different question now and it's for both Ray and for Tina and so maybe Ray you can start was the dialogue that's interesting because you know oftentimes we do feel it is very much this out just churning out stuff, but what kind of, what kind of reaction, what kind of dialogue are you getting? And is that, do you think that's raising awareness more? Or do you think that's like, like, for example, on TikTok, like your videos, I'm like, are you having dialogue that maybe you wouldn't have had or had those conversations you wouldn't have had it previously? I have to some degree, but because part of the reason really ends up being, I think we, uh, recruitment like study recruitment considers things as being transactional you you go out you ask you push that message and say hey we need you to do a thing then you go do the thing and then you publish the thing um whereas when it comes to thinking about um engaging and partnering especially in a marginalized community um and in a community that's often had uh, uh high risks of paternalism mm -hmm. and had a lot of people like um, dictating the story for them. Um, this is an opportunity to think about um, engagement and that dialogue as being something that people are not generally won over by a singular exchange in this respect. And they need an opportunity to think about not only the full story, but about the evolution and where this fits within the framework of one's own complicated life. And understanding that to make that first step is an assertion of trust where there hasn't necessarily been trust in that system previously. Uh, so it's complicated, uh, but if I can bring uh, humor, warmth, and uh, connection um, in, in many respects, I mean, despite the fact that I may um, identify as a part of the disability community myself and have raised a child uh, who was disabled, um, I still have my layers of bias that I operate from. So I try to do that with uh, recognizing that as well uh, along the ways too. And that gets recognized in that space. And so um, I can walk within uh, populations of people who may find the system suspicious, but also help to, them to see that you can also do big things and create better things and build things and really assert that term that it says in like uh, the Convention of the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, um, it, it's basically that we we belong in designing spaces yeah. and people want that, that to be seen. And so that's one thing that I also bring to researchers as well too, is that it's not just on um, a moral and ethical foundation in which we do this work. It's literally 
part of our human rights system as well, too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, and Tina, did like that's interesting that you got actually that kind of two-way dialogue. That's what I picked up when you were saying about um, about the event and how did that did that change how 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 things have moved forward? Do you try to encourage more of that? Like, in so I, I think what was what was really unique about it was you know. Just, just like Ray said, it's one thing to kind of send out a research brief or to even put out a participant quote. It's another thing to have a patient speak directly to a policymaker or a member of government about their experience in a research study and what their takeaways are and what their concerns are. I think that voice is invaluable and it really hits home in a different way. Even for us as researchers who are interviewing patients all the time and having stakeholder meetings, when a patient partner, you know, co-writes an editorial with us or speaks at a conference with us, I think it just lands in a different way. So I think giving the space for that type of dialogue where the message is not being filtered through a media channel or through a researcher where it's going directly, I think is, is very impactful. And you know, creating spaces for that, whether it be something similar to what we've done, which is a roundtable, but also things like this, like podcasts and social media, where people can hear directly from patients who are leading this research, I think is incredibly valuable. Absolutely. And I mean, like you just said, like you've mentioned a number of different events uh, in terms of knowledge mobilization, you know, with podcasts, social media, even more traditional, like there's, there seems to be this plethora of things out there. But after all these efforts, why is there still a lack of awareness? I mean, that's what our study found, but maybe it's not, maybe is it a perception? Is it, is it real? Like, I'm kind of curious about your thoughts on after all this time, you know, we have SPORE, we've had it since what, you know, 2014. And but there still seems to be, it seems to be slow. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are about, about that level of awareness. Ray, did you want to go first? <laughs> sure, happy to. Um, I, I think that there's a couple layers to that uh, in, in some cases. Part of that is definitely um, system-wise because there are many times where I find that there is um, things that we invest in and we're happy that other people are doing that. And we just don't want to invest further than what we have already. And we we need when it comes so when it comes to buy-in, um, it's not just about the fiscal or like you know funding these these initiatives and things like that. It's about really truly authentically believing deeply that this matters for a lot of reasons. And so there there's a need to think about. Um, how we change its perceptions in a number of different systems. And I would say as well, too, um, it, it's not uh, from a policy standpoint, not everybody's fully aware of what um, what goes on um, at a government level in terms of the, these types of programs. While they know they exist, sometimes they it, it, it's there's lack of investment and in not knowing who's doing what and where it all goes and things like that. So it's hard to kind of think about the complexities that we navigate within this world. Um, when it comes to other people as well, I think there's there there are interesting models out there that have think thought about things at scale. Like I think about um, there's a patient community called Imagine Citizens here in Alberta, for example, that has well over a thousand members, um, and they have thought about um, intentionally reaching rural communities and people who might have to travel like three hours to a local library in order to get internet access. Um, they have got operated on very little by way of budget and have really um, made a mark on the province in terms of saying that we're, we're here and we're ready to engage. 
but that comes with people who have the time who are ready to invest to, to go out and to share that message with people. Um, but part of that is really as well, acknowledging that there are people within the system who do have the capability, who have engaged for a while, um, who um, could exercise leadership qualities if they were given particular guidances. So like one of the programs that I work with is called the uh, Family Engagement Program. And it's uh, the primary course is a 10-week course offering opportunity for people to come together and uh, like researchers and community members and learn about building quality relationships. But one of the next phases of our program has been uh, the development of a leadership academy, which is offering people um, little um, characteristics and tools to help them understand what it means to advocate within their local systems and help improve and advocate for engagement and make sure that that happens in wherever they live. And this has actually been a message that has reached a wide variety of people internationally. Our, our most furthest student was from Suriname. People want to know what it means to advocate for this type of work like everywhere. Um, so with that in mind, like we, we give people an opportunity to do elevator pitches. So if you had somebody trapped in an elevator that you wanted to talk to, um, can you talk about that next step in three minutes or less? Um, things like that. So that offers people that confidence and to uh, think about what it means to find a vision in improving engagement. That's awesome. That, the leadership academy, that sounds fascinating. I've always, I've watched from afar the, your, the research program, the family engagement one. So to see it take that next step is really, uh, really encouraging. For sure. And you never know when that happens. I was at a random conference a couple of weeks ago um, in Toronto and I ran into a politician I've had a um, just dreamed of having a conversation with. Unfortunately, it didn't happen in that moment, but it's just, oh. it was just representative of one of those things where you, uh, you, you never know when that comes about and you want to be ready and have that uh, message in your back pocket to exactly. help move things forward. That's awesome. Hopefully next time there will be a next time. We'll put that in the universe now. <laughs> Tina, what, um, from your view, I mean, I mean, I, and I, and I can understand maybe a bit like having sort of done similar, like working with people, like that, that constant, you know, always seeming to have to raise awareness that this is a thing that it's important to include. Um, have you any thoughts on why that might still be the case after all these efforts that we see on a national level, provincial, what have you? Yeah, no, for sure. I, I think, you know, awareness is is improving, but I think one one gap that I've observed is I think sometimes researchers struggle to think, is my research and is my question conducive to patient-oriented research? And, and I think they have a hard time seeing how patient partners can co-lead the projects they have because, you know, we're very set in our objectives and our PICO questions and our, you know, advancing our science. And, and so they kind of have a hard time often saying, well, how is the patient perspective going to be incorporated when I have a research question already? And so I think it's a couple of things. I think number one, it's a bit of a culture shift and being willing to change your research question or to add additional questions to reflect what, what the needs of the population are. And I can tell you, there's been entire grants that we've written just because our patient and community partners have said that this is important to them. And it was topics that we would have never, you know, researched on our own. And so, but I, but I think that's, that's a culture and you have to have an environment that's supportive of that. Um, 
But the second thing, I think we need awareness on how to actually do patient-oriented research and to show researchers that it's more accessible than you think it is, right? It's not, it's not an impossible feat. It requires some time, it requires an investment, but it but it is feasible and it's feasible for all different types of research. And so that's why I think it's been really fantastic to see groups like the Spore Evidence Alliance who do a lot of systematic reviews and meta-analyses, you know, research that I think traditionally we wouldn't think is conducive to POR, but they developed entire methodological frameworks and have have a whole um, you know committee of patient partners who inform the research question and help define outcomes for the review and then help write research briefs on the when the studies are done and advocate for evidence being put into action so I think more and more you know crossing kind of disciplines to talk about how to do patient-oriented research is really valuable but I also think we need a little bit of work about you know, multidisciplinary approaches to making research efficient and patient oriented. And I can give a quick example from some of the work we did during COVID. Um, we were approached by um, immunity researchers who really wanted to assess uh, seroprevalence of of COVID in long-term care populations. And so they, they approached us because we had relationships with a lot of these long-term care homes. And what we said back was, you know, this is a fantastic study, but we need to make sure that we're also addressing the needs of the long-term care homes. And what we ended up doing was running kind of a multi-arm study where we partnered with the homes. We did needs assessment to figure out what supports they needed, help them implement their IPAC, their vaccine strategies. We implemented wellness strategies to deal with the mental health burnout that was going on in homes. And and because we were able to kind of build that trust and address needs, we were also able to facilitate the fantastic work of our colleagues that informed some of the vaccine policy in Canada, right? And so I think thinking about these things a little more creatively that, you know, immunity research is over here and health systems research is over here and KM is over there. I think we can be a lot more creative and efficient to integrate KM in, in, or integrate POR in ways that we haven't been before. And I think just to your point about awareness, we need a lot more capacity building on if people want to do that, how they how they can do that. One last point as well, too. Uh, I think this is a conversation I've had with a few sport or related organizations, and I think we all share a similar sim sentiment um, that we all have a lot of these really great initiatives and programs that are there and available for training, but we haven't really kind of consolidated what they do and help people have a better track and understanding like um, I have this goal to meet specifically in terms of where my awareness is or my knowledge is, um, then, okay, then you go to this program. Um, you have a different one, you go to this program, things like that. So there is a need to kind of start coming together and thinking about how we can streamline that process a little bit. Plus, when you Google patient-oriented research, you have to know the term first. You can't just say, I want to partner re research and get a really good formative understanding of it. So it's not a concept with a digital footprint that's very intuitive for people who are very new to the concept as well. It's really fascinating all the work and thinking you're putting into both of you, both into really building bridges between research and the public, but then also bridges among researchers and the different organizations that are supposed to um, be supporting us all. And a question that I have that's something that I've been trying to figure out myself, to be honest, and also um, I know a lot of my colleagues are doing the same thing. And it's the whole idea that like, yes, we need to raise awareness by moving our findings beyond just the traditional publications that, you know, like you don't even get a paper copy of them anymore. So you have it saved as a PDF that you send to people. But then so... 
And I know both of you have been involved in many things. So what are ways that researchers and patient partners and whoever can really share their research findings beyond just like going to a conference with your poster or like submitting it into a journal? Um, so what tips would you give to people about that? That's a really great question. I think that in, in some respects, depending on where what your subject matter is, that really helps shape what sort of initiatives can come about. I have thought about this a lot from the policy standpoint within the world of disability because of um, just the nature of the work. You have a number of different coalitions who work within the world of disability rights, things like that. But they, you, Part, part of that is really coming together and starting to figure out unified ways in which you can have those conversations effectively. Um, like, for example, uh, when it comes to shaping certain aspects of uh, this type of policy or evidence, that comes with having an, an awareness and understanding of court cases in some cases in terms of what's established court-related precedent. And um, that's not exactly in everybody's um wheelhouse of knowledge to go down to the Canley website and know how to search or interpret that and things like that. So if there is a way to start thinking about thing, uh, court cases that could be rele relevant to people in helping shape better aspects of research on a particular theme when you're all have investments in that is to figure out ways how you can consolidate that knowledge together and talk about, okay, hey, BC is doing that. Did you know that they're doing that in education law? Um, you know, thing, uh, different things like that where you, everyone attempts to kind of streamline some of the work associated with um, uh, an overall long-term goal, if you will. Um, but some of that's really challenging because it's it's very uniquely tedious in a way because part of it uh, ends up being this particular demographic has a significant data gap associated with it as well. And so there, people want that burden of evidence, um, but in order to move forward, we need to collect that evidence and to think about how we can do that. But so we don't aggregate that really well. And we really need to think about moving that forward in, in more streamlined ways, but also involving community in that, in terms of what sort of repositories could be developed along the way. Yeah, I, I totally echo what, what Ray said. Like I would say it's, it's two kind of main takeaways. The first is there's no one size fits all. Like I think it will just come down to the research question, the population you're trying to reach the issue. And one thing we try to do is create kind of an end of grant or end of project KT plan, knowledge translation plan. And we often involve our patient partners in that process to ask them, you know, where do your colleagues or, you know, other patients or where do your friends reach? reach out to, to get their information and we kind of tailor our uh, products based on what they tell us and they've been really different depending on the community and depending on um, the topic and and just you know thinking about that upfront is, is very helpful and can help us save some wasted resources you know chasing a video platform because we think it's a good idea but nobody wants to watch a video so kind of kind of going like again listening listening is is really important um and um you know what I actually just forgot my second point <laughs> it'll come back to me <laughs> I think you're right though I thought I say the I say this phrase a lot if you build it they won't necessarily come and so that's why community involvement is so important in this yeah. area 
Yeah, actually, you you reminded me. So the other thing I was going to say was to your point of, of evaluation and, and measurement is I think that's another thing we often see, especially when it comes to dissemination, is we're often reinventing the wheel based on what we think are good ideas, and we don't have any evidence about uptake, and we're not investing in the measurements. So, um, you know, we have we kind of know the list of different channels, whether it's research briefs or social media or Twitter. We know kind of where we can disseminate, but for every project, we're just trying things out, right? And I think what would be very valuable is to spend a bit more time in these process evaluations and track how many views did this get? Who's actually looking at this? Is it hitting the populations that, that we want to reach? And so having that and then contributing to a collective database would be very helpful to say, oh, I worked in a long-term care population. You know, the videos didn't work really well, but our, our Twitter messages did or whatever it might be, I think, collectively contributing to that dissemination science knowledge is really valuable and I think is a really, really huge gap in the literature right now, both for patient-oriented research, but also just kind of knowledge mobilization in general, I think. Absolutely. I completely agree. And I do wonder if somebody has been analyzing, like one prime example for me is the dissemination that came about with like the early phases of COVID. Uh, Twitter was just Med Twitter was constantly about the dissemination process at the time. Um, I would love to know if somebody's looking into something like that and seeing how that streamlined along the way when everyone had that focalized. It was a giant work group, if you will, in many respects. And so um, it, is that being looked at somewhere? I don't know. But that's just kind of like one interesting example to me that I would find personally very fascinating to see what it means about col international collaboration working in a, a variety of different streams. That's so helpful, both of you, and it's such an important reminder to consider knowledge mobilization as an aspect of the research cycle, because it is. And so with that, to approach the question and its solution mindfully, and to not just, like you said, start tweeting everywhere or like trying to create TikTok videos. I don't even know how to download it and just feel like I have to, but to rather reach out to experts such as yourselves or knowledge, other knowledge brokers, and to really start to think about what are the organizations, the target groups that I want to reach, and then how will I know I've been successful? And as patient-oriented researchers, you're right, reach out to the communities, keep working with your patient partners, and develop this plan together. So that was really helpful. Next time I start to panic, I'm just going to take a deep breath <laughs> and devise a plan. I was wondering too, actually, Anna, like you got me thinking about, and, and I think also the talk about the process evaluation that often triggers in my mind, you know, questions of value, or at least not from me, but certainly when one is asked to sort of prove that it works, like that's often a, a question. Um, and I, I do wonder, like, and maybe this is maybe maybe it's actually gotten better. I don't know. I'm kind of curious your thoughts about, you know, raising more awareness about the value of patient engagement. And is that do you find it's is it less conversations about that now? And is it more like just showing examples of patient engagement in different research studies? Or is there still this need to convince people of the merits of involving people that in decisions that actually directly impact them as I say that it doesn't make sense to me but <laughs> I don't have uh, numbers to quantify my answer but I think one kind of solid pitch that we often use is 
by involving patients early on and really understanding the needs of populations, we're going to have less research waste, right? And we have lots of examples of implementing initiatives and doing something just because we think it's a good idea. And there, you know, there's there's been a lot of work in this space just kind of showing that often we think we know and we spend a lot of time and a lot of resources developing programs and apps and interventions that don't actually address needs. And so even just thinking about a resource perspective, there's so much time and money and work to be saved by doing things more efficiently by speaking to those who are going to be impacted by, by the intervention and, and to actually listen to hear what the problem is. So I think that's a you know fairly compelling message to to send to policymakers, but the more we can kind of quantify that and show how the investment in patient-oriented research changed our plans and writing process evaluations and unpacking that black box about like often I see in manuscripts we in the methods there'll be a paragraph saying we had patient partners and they advised on this and that and then it's like the whole study and that's that's it but just that like if we could write papers on that process here's what we originally planned and here's how it changed and here's how we engaged people and evaluating how we're engaging people and you know just just spending a lot more time in that process evaluation, describing it, collecting those metrics, I think is so helpful and valuable to say, we were going to do this, it might have cost us this amount of money, but we were able to change course and do things much more efficiently. So I, I think, again, yeah, just just kind of thinking about investing the time in those evaluations can be very meaningful. And and I think would be a, a compelling argument to policymakers, to researchers. Um, and on the flip side, I think for for patients, we we they patients also need to feel secure that they're not being involved in a tokenistic process, right? And so I think some kind of accountability to say, here's how we intend to use your feedback, or here's how we're going to include you, here's what we anticipate, make sure that their goals and needs are also being addressed. I think it needs to go both ways, right? It's not just what compels researchers and policymakers, but what also compels patients to continue partnering with us, right? I couldn't agree more, Tina, especially just uh, you mentioning, uh, touching on the notion of potentials for harm in, in this case as well, too. Uh, a lot of people that I work with as uh, research partners have struggled with this idea of thinking that they're, they're, their first exposure to the notion of partnership and really ends up being an extension of their perceptions of how they've been treated in care. And so to me, I, I feel like this uh, this notion of partnership can be an extension of patient and family-centered services in, in many respects as well, too. But um, in terms of how people see this type of work, some of that really comes down to, uh, I... I think there's a depth that's really uh, difficult to quantify in many respects. I think about a dear friend of mine who teaches uh, educational assist assistants or future ones in a university setting. And I sat in on one of her lectures once and she said, if you don't feel this type of work in your bones, don't do it. And I think that that really is reflective of a lot of what um, goes into this work as well, too is to real that feeling that you, not only you, you see just from the metrics or um, in terms of analysis or evaluation, but also how that, um, how your partners re reflect um, that experience as well too, as being community-based, as being something that they're attached to, um, about that sense of pride as their first study is published. 
Um, all of these things talk about uh, va validation of one story. Um, I've actually started talking about uh, within some of my work, uh, I created a bit of a mild, like a small framework on the evolution of a person's experience. Uh, I call it Dice's L. And it's basically about from the path of discovery towards leadership. And there's even things like um, investment, uh, catharsis, uh, empowerment, all of these things come into uh, different er facets of a person's complicated experience with partnership. So we don't really address the psychosocial aspect of what it means to connect with the system to a degree where suddenly you have that sense of power um, associated with that and what that relationship looks like, but also that potential and risk to harm in some cases as well too, because we can mandate this work Till the cows come home but at the same time you can skip a lot of the integral things if you if you have a total disinterest in the work and um risk impacting people in very negative ways as well too so we need to think about um what the why and help people better understand that as well too if they um, are working in this field and that's such an important point to consider as we all work together towards raising awareness for patient engagement in research is to ensure that we never lose sight of really ensuring the capacity is there to ensure that as more patients do become patient partners, that our understanding of patient engagement in research, our collective approaches are there to help ensure that everyone has the best experience possible. So many of these factors that we're discussing through our podcast are interrelated. And I love how every kind of episode builds and ties to each other. So now before we wrap up, um, is there any one key takeaway or one key consideration that you'd each like our listeners to walk away with when they are thinking about awareness of patient engagement in research, both maybe in terms of its importance or how they can incorporate it into their own practice? That's tough. <laughs> A single takeaway. Um, I don't know if this is this is the single takeaway, but I think one important thing is I, I think we need to think about this at a system level and think about the way that we do research and fund research, right? And there really needs to be a system level shift in our investment in patient-oriented research. So putting these resources into building those relationships, building trust, making sure patient partners are compensated, making sure that we're supporting their needs as they give us their time. And right now, you know, grants are, funding agencies are becoming much more open to that, but it's still not mainstream. So I think that's that's one kind of system change that needs to happen. And also just from kind of the university research institute perspective is as scientists, there isn't really any metric that looks at your engagement in patient-oriented research. That's not something we are measured on. It's not something we are rewarded for. It's kind of work that we do on our own. And, and, and that can be tough with all of the other competing demands when you have to show your funding and show your publications. There should be space to show that this work is important. And I think if, if we're serious about investing in patient-oriented research, that also needs to reflect in our assessments and, and making sure that there's room for scientists to have protected time to do this work meaningfully. So it's not an afterthought once they've kind of met the other demands. And so again, just from a system perspective, setting up research to facilitate these partnerships, reduce research waste, and let people know what's going on across different groups, the way we fund, the way we measure, I think I think that's really important. I think we'll make a much bigger impact if, if we think about this a little more holistically. 
I think if I were to ponder a couple, uh, a couple things come to mind. One of them is don't do this work in isolation. Um, research has a way of kind of making you just being, you know, moving forward, doing your own thing. But in terms of the, the steps and the qualities that are necessary to partner with other people, find other people that can support you in your decision-making and how you strategize and how you plan, because there's definitely someone else who's thinking, oh, am I doing this right? Am I doing this well? Am I doing enough? Um, things like that. And just thinking about a comment that I had with a researcher recently, it was that uh, if you are working on something long-term to consider how to incorporate planning into uh, your work to help your partners figure out how you want to say goodbye and close the door eventually when that study is over. Because a lot of people, uh, well, I mean, depending on the, the population that you work with, but sometimes there are mental health aspects associated with partnering in this respect. And so to offer them that space to think about how they want to uh, finish up this work um, gives them that psychological opportunity to say goodbye in a very healthy way, um, depending on how things go. And maybe they they come back, but that's just an opportunity for them to evaluate themselves, how, what this experience was for them and whether or not they want to do it again. That's wonderful. And thank you so much, both of you, for sh sharing your thoughts and generously your time to, um, you know, share more about, about your experiences with awareness and your thoughts on, on some of these issues that we're, we're all, I think, um, trying to wrestle with um, in, our, in our studies uh, moving forward. So um, thank you so much again uh, to both of you for joining us today. Um, and for those listening, you can, well, you found us probably on Spotify or Apple uh, podcasts, but we're also on YouTube where you can have um, a video with closed captioning. And we also share the, the, the written transcript on our Substack. If there's any uh, questions that you might have um, for us, you can email Anna at anna.asperusual at gmail.com. And you can email myself as well at brin.asperusual at gmail.com. So thanks to both Ray and Tina for joining us today. And on behalf of Anna, uh, let's keep moving forward and making patient engagement and research the standard or as per usual. Thanks so much. Thank you.